and welcome to another episode of Sacred Cinema here on 2XX on 8.3 FM People Powered Radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, for the next half hour, and this week's episode is entitled Conservative Slash Progressive. a couple of weeks ago when we did the Monstrous Feminine episode and we talked about Jacques Derrida and sublimation and binaries and how there's always an interconnectedness, there's always an interplay between binary abstract ideas. And I wanted to flesh that out a little bit more. I've been meaning to this episode for actually quite a while. I wanted to talk about that sort of thing, but in the context of maybe the, the big binary, the one that's Quite a touchy one. Uh, the conservative progressive binary. People, you know, call themselves left wing with a great deal of pride. Some people call themselves right wing with a great deal of pride. Conservative because people who are on different sides don't necessarily get along. No one wants to be called one or the other. Blah blah blah. I want to talk about we use we're deconstructing in in the truest sense here in a sort of Derridian sense we actually are going to try and deconstruct that binary and have a look at how there have been cinematic depictions of conservative and progressive ideas and how they kind of fall and flow into one another in this complex interplay and maybe maybe you as a listener might reconsider or maybe you'll become stronger in your views about where you are but maybe think again about sort of how staunchly or how rigidly your political views uh, might fall into a particular bucket or category and rather that it's a little bit more fluid than that perhaps um, the first one we're going to talk about is The Blue Kaftan uh, directed by Mariam Tuzani is it Kaftan or Kaftan? I don't speak Moroccan. Uh, and I saw that, this is a new release, and I saw it the other day, and I thought this, you know, in wanting to do this episode for a long time, I thought this would be the perfect film uh, to talk about that one, uh, to, to talk about this topic with. Uh, we're then going to move on to Hayao Miyazaki's uh, 1997 film, Princess Mononoke, uh, the Studio Ghibli film. And then we're going to finish off with Robert Wise's film from 1965, The Sound of Music. Uh, so strap yourselves in. This is going to be a really interesting one. Let's start off now, though, with the blue caftan from from last year, two thousand and twenty-two. So, as I said before, this is a new one, and it's based around a. It's it's a small film. It's based around a husband uh, named named Halim and a wife named Mina, and they are they live in Morocco. And the crux of the plot is that Halim, that the husband, is pretty much coming to terms with his suppressed homosexuality uh, and Mina, his wife, is dying. And so he's got a classic dilemma really where, you know, he's not sure whether he wants to, you know, be true to his sexuality uh, and betray his wife or be true to his wife and be loyal and by her side and not be true to himself and his sexuality. So it's a classic dilemma and this is definitely a film that explores the concept and the tension of dilemmas and impasses and divergent roads, which we've talked about many times on the show, and, and dichotomies and binaries. Um, but I specifically want to look at this this symbol of fabric because if you don't know what a kaftan is, it's like a, it's like a formal... Uh, it's not a dress, it's like a, f- a formal form of clothing that uh, people in Morocco wear um, for, for formal events and things like that. And, and Halim, and, um, Halim and Mina, uh, they make kaftans. And, uh, you know, a bit like in Phantom Thread, you get with you have a fashion designer, with fashion designer films, you have these beautiful close-up 
shots of the dressmakers touching them and feeling the fabric and it's a very quiet film and you actually hear the sound of fingertips running against the, the cloth and everything like that. That's a real exploration of the senses, uh, but in particular sensuality itself. And I, I, I really just want to talk now about the role of a caftan maker uh, or at least a, like a, a clothing maker at all because on, on, on one side you, you must have great knowledge a great technique. You must know how to do things. You know, uh, you know how to measure things, chopping things, knowing the correct technique on a, on a sort of cognitive level. But then you also need to have an aesthetic eye, an aesthetic feel. Where, um, and we specifically see this tension a lot in the scenes where they're doing fittings, uh, where. Helene's talking about how a dress should work and that it's not just a piece piece of cloth, but it's almost like a character that needs to be honoured when you wear it. And it it kind of has this emotional flavour to it. The the dress itself is this this organic being. So so you really need to... It's not just a simple matter of saying, well, you know, your your shoulders are 30 inches wide or whatever, and therefore we need to cut it like that. He he talks about it almost like on a performative level. And I think that tension between the cognitive and the aesthetic, let's say, it transpants very nicely onto the exploration of sexuality itself in this film. So being sec- being a sexual being, for example, is both a kind of cognitive and intuitive act on, on a cognitive level. You know, there are rules that one must follow when they engage in sexual acts, you know, rules around consent, uh, rules around sort of where things go and, and things like that, and, and, and knowing that, you know, you've agreed to a certain thing and not something else, but also if, you, if you're in a marriage or if you're in an exclusive relationship, there are rules around, you know, who you can sleep with and who you can't and what you can do and that sort of thing. But also, of course, sex is a very intuitive thing. Thing. And it's something that it is, you know, a lot of things do go unspoken. And maybe when I was saying all those things, you're like, well, that sounds very rigid. When I make love, it's it's exactly that. It's making love. It's it's an organic thing. It's a it's an instinctive thing. I, I put my hand here. I put my leg there. I, I sort of I go off the feel of it. And I don't mean to go too far with this, but we can, we can expand that out a bit further as well and sort of talk about how that these ideas around this tension between cognition and emotion, this plays into a broader into broader political ideologies as well, that some of the broader political ideologies that we see um, tested in the film as well. And, you know, the first being sort of, um, you know, being a, a, you know, a rule-following kind of ideology. I don't want to say which one's right-wing, which one's left-wing, but, you know, we can have a, a rule-following kind of ideology um, respecting order and um, uh, basing things around tradition and, and saying that, you know, there are, there are static rules of human nature that we've always uh, abided by that we need to continue to abide by and adhere to. And then on the other hand, some people have a, a more of a political ideology that's a lot more organic or anarchical or a go-with-the-flow kind of un-ideology ideology, which is that, you know, human beings can't know truth. Human beings... Um, can never fully articulate what's right and wrong. We need to do this through a more empirical, we need to figure out what's right and wrong through a more empirical, experimental, trusting your gut, trusting your heart kind of approach. And so the experience of existence on the individual level is kind of like this relentless debate between the heart and the head, between the brain and the gut, the intuitive and the rational, uh, which is certainly ideas we've spoken about uh, b- before. And and I suppose that I don't want to use those as sort of perfect analogies for the left versus right, conservative versus progressive debate, but I kind of do because in the film, when we when we explore when when Hel- when Helene you know in exploring Helene's Helene's character and the dilemmas that he has, on one hand he wants to respect his wife. 
but also want to, to embrace his true self, right? Um, he wants to respect the rules that mean that he'll be, that the demand that he's loyal to his wife, but he also wants to respect himself and his own intuitive, um, dare I say, sort of more emotional or, or, or gut-based uh, instincts around his sexuality. So in one sense, he wants to uphold the traditional values of, of loving and being loyal to one's wife, but also it's to depart from those almost very same values, or at least depart from the, from the basis from which those values come, depart from the culture which has been oppressive on his sexuality for so long. Now, how is this revolved... Uh, sorry, how is this resolved in the film, or at least cinematically? Now, because it's a new film, I really don't want to give it away, but this film perfectly, in my view, perfectly conveys a, this this idea of the simultaneous rejection uh, and sense of respect for tradition all in one image, all in one act. Um, we, we see a moment at the end of this film where we see a rejection of the rigid and antiquated, irrational vestiges of tradition. Um, Someone you might say irrational. I mean, you know, we, you know, often when we talk about religion now, um, we sort of talk about some, somehow, sometimes like having, particularly around uh, like evangelical Christian traditions in America, for example, we talk about how it's all a bunch of nonsense and it's magic and blah, 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 blah. The, you, know, you know, I think you see a little bit of that in this film as well, this kind of rejection of, well, you know, some of these ideas are a bit antiquated and they're a bit like spooky kooky. Let's just drop it there for the sake of what we actually already hear about. But but also in the same image, and if you see the film, you know what I'm talking about, we see Helene pay respect to the beauty in building and developing and inheriting the tapestry of tradition that exists in, still in, in modern-day Morocco. So... When we watch a movie like The Blue Kaftan, we, we definitely see all this working out on a, inter, on, a, on a personal and interpersonal level, I should say, where we can be conflicted by this tension between wanting to both uphold and simultaneously uphold and reject tradition. But what about, on, what about these ideas on, on a broader level, not just on the personal level, and, and, and not just sort of how the personal, uh, the individual person deals with, um, you know, I talked before about you know, political ideologies on the personal level, but, but those ideologies in and of themselves, and, and let, can we even go broader? broader to the metaphysical level. Well, in order to do that, let's move on to our next film. But before we do, just remind you, I listen to 2XX98.3 FM, people-powered radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, for the remainder of this half an hour. Please stay tuned for more quality radio programming after Sacred Cinema, but also jump onto our website to consider subscribing to the station or sponsoring the show. Uh, we'd love it if you could do that. There'd be no tension in that at all. But moving on now to Princess Mononoke by um, Hayao uh, Miyazaki from 1997. Um, this one, the plot, if you haven't seen it, um, Ashitaka, who's our protagonist, he's this young boy who's sort of roaming around the forest and he gets attacked by this demon thing uh, and his arm gets all swollen and gross. Uh, and in order to cure himself, he has... There's a lot of details of the plot with this one, but I'm going to try and focus on the main points. He has to go away to this far-off land. This old lady tells him to go off there to lift the curse, and in doing so, he ends up uh, in this faraway village that produces iron, and and, and there's, there's also these gods and animals that live in the forest who are threatened by this, this village that produces the iron, because obviously they need to cut down trees to get the iron. You get the picture, right? There's a tension between nature and industry going on. So, again, of course, on the personal level, we see this tension between 
I suppose in this case, it's 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 less about let's say tradition and the intuitive, but rather uh, a, a, you know, a tension between power and preservation. Let's say so. Um, in getting bitten by this demon Ashitaka, um, he becomes really he becomes like super powerful and like really strong, but it'll eventually kill him. And and the quote that they use in the film is this is what you know when when everyone's um, bickering in this village and he's like super strong because he's surrounded by all the hate and the anger and he gets heaps like he's really good fighting he says this is what hate looks like it's eating me alive and soon it will kill me fear and anger will only make it grow faster and i I think a lot of people might say that about say conservatives for example or, or people who are big into big business and corporate you know it's all good to make lots of money but if it destroys the earth you know you might be super powerful but you're not preserving the earth and i'm sure you could say the same about the other side of politics as well but it's you know I, we don't have time to go into all that but we can see that we can see that tension between between becoming in love with power on a personal level but also um, rejecting um, uh, the value for preservation, not only self-preservation, but preservation of the community and, and the human race on, on, a, on the whole. But but let's expand out then to the political and the economic level. Like Let's let's leave the, the, the realm of the individual and actually talk about the sort of the bigger political and economic um, things happening. We obviously have a tension between environmental environmental degradation and industry in this film. So it, it's not simply a children's story where nature is to be protected at all costs, like a Fernwood Gully or what, what's that Fern Gully or whatever that movie is. Um, but it's quite an abstract tale about seeking harmony between nature and industry. Now, obviously, depictions of nature in this film is obviously very beautiful and sacred and there's flowers and birds and it's all lovely. But the depictions of the town are really clever. I think it's called Tatara, but they also got Iron Town at one point. I don't know, but if you've seen the film, you know what I mean. The the town where they produce the iron. It's, It's not just that these are these cartoonish villains who are just pouring pollution into the water and aren't they bad... Um, we actually see a complex depiction of how this lady who's running the show, she's employing lepers so that they can work and, and they're dignified. Um, she also liberates the women. It's a very um, empowering depiction of women. Uh, you'd think this film came out at, like very recently. It like, very much plays into modern ideas around depictions of women in Hollywood versus other films from 1997. Uh, surely, uh, you know, ahead of the curve when you compare it to something like American Pie that comes out two years later. Um, and, and, and in its depictions of those characters, the, the, particularly the women and the lepers, we suddenly start to see this, the, 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 not just... We use the word intersectionality a lot when we talk about uh, race and gender, but we see the intersectionality of all political things or all political issues in this film, which is, I guess, on a very basic level, it's kind of like, what is justice to someone is not necessarily justice to someone else who belongs to a different group. Um, if you give one group rights, you inevitably are taking rights away from someone else in some other place, and not in simplistic terms like black, white, male, female. Um, but, you know, if you give one group guns, it means there's a group somewhere that's going to be the victim of those shootings. Or if you give one group health care, there's another group that's going to have to pay the taxes. There's always going to be some kind of Jenga effect when someone finds justice or or finds a right or, or, is, or is provided something in the system. Um, and in this film, it's, it's, it's a good depiction of how it's usually on the levels of, of vulnerable people that we see this most intensified. So if you take the lepers, for example, and the, and the forest, dwellers, the two probably most vulnerable groups in this film. What is justice for the lepers 
is an injustice for the forest dwellers. And, and we kind of don't want either team to win because we don't want the lepers to starve and go sick and hungry. But we also don't want to see all the cute animals get killed either, right, for the sake of either one of those groups. So, again, we're seeing this tension between, um, yeah, it's all well and good to say that nature is worth preserving, but the industry is important to, you know, uh, you know, getting rid of poverty and making sure that sick people, you know, there's capital that can be tra- – I don't want to get into the, cap- the, the capitalism and Marxism and processes of, of commerce, but you understand the tension there, I imagine. But let's expand it back even bigger now. We've talked about the individual. We've talked about it on, like, sort of the political level. What about on this very – like, a, on the broadest, most abstract, cultural, philosophical, metaphysical level? Just on the basic concept of artificiality versus natural, Right. So we, we know that there's an intuitively sacred and noble quality to natural things and nature itself. And in the film, we feel that. When we see the forest regenerating, and you notice it in your heart when you see it, there's a, something in us, there's something in the human experience where we like seeing, you know, when, when the forest spirit's foot hits the ground and the flowers bloom out or we see a transition from black to green, even just in those basic color transitions, for whatever reason, through through billions of, not billions, but hundreds of thousands of millions of years of evolution, for some reason, human beings like seeing that image. It's a nice image. We actually, and they've done studies, I'm pretty sure, where if you have like even a desktop with flowers on it, that makes you more calm than if it's like pictures of I don't know, space or metal or something like that. Like human beings like to see nice, lush, green things. But in order to tell that story, right, the narrative that is employed is a very human-centric, artificial, archetypal narrative, right? It's In other words, it's totally referable to the human condition, right? We use human constructs to uncover what, what what humans innately enjoy, right? So so the, the, uh, that, makes, that makes no sense in a, in a way. The story itself is a very archetypal hero's journey, like down to a T, right? Ashitaka is a young boy from a humble village. He goes off to a faraway land, learns a thing or two by confronting the darkness, comes back stronger and solves all the world's problems. Right? So you've got Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars written all over it, right? And, and it's particularly all that stuff about him embracing hate and becoming his own enemy, right? That's, that's Star Wars, you know, with the hand, and it's literally in in Princess Mononoke, it's a it's a black arm. In Star Wars, it's a black hand. But we see it in you know things like Spider Man Three or Lord of the Rings. You know, he puts on the ring. It's good for a short term, but it ends up killing him. Uh, Doctor Jekyll meets the Hyde. There's an element. But it's a very archetypal idea that you have a, the protagonist can't embrace short term power because in the long term, the, the the point I'm trying to make is that. The, the the these archetypal narratives, these artificial stories. These are what lend us. This this is this is where we are. This is how we are given tradition. This is where tradition comes from. Is the telling of archetypal stories, saying, "Well, you ought not do that because we know that in the past that didn't work." You know, this is a value. This is a cultural custom or an ideal because throughout history, this is how people have d- governed themselves. This is how they've told other people. This is how they've taught and told other people how to live their lives and you should do the same. Don't try and reinvent the wheel, the wheel, i.e. the story, the hero's journey, the narrative, the archetypal narrative that all human beings can follow, you know, whether that's Jesus's life or whatever hero that you value. 
um, that isn't to be rejected. So on one level, we have this this love of the organic and seeing things blossom um, spontaneously, right? But on the other level, we have this no, we, we've we've learned this before. Don't try and don't try and come up with something new. We we know how to live a good life, right? So we see this tension manifesting itself in every strata of existence, right? In this story, uh, on the personal, on the political, and on the abstract level. But is it the same in the real world? And if so, what is the cure to this tension, if there is a cure? Well, let's move on now to The Sound of Music, directed by Robert Wise. And you might think this is a bit of a funny one to be talking about, but I I picked this one because in many ways it is kind of like the ultimate example of what we're talking about, but in real terms. So on one hand, this film is kind of, it's, it's almost like Aryan propaganda in its embrace and celebration of the of the traditional um, especially when you think about, you know, when we, when we talked about Shrek a couple of weeks ago and, and people and, and how that was a rejection of the archetypal and, the, or dare I say, the stereotypical um, and, and a rejection of, of classic tales of, of, of song and dancing, you know, walking through the forest and singing to the birds, right? We literally have this, this the way that, the, you know, the, 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 the way that the, the heroes in this film are depicted is like you've got a clean, white European family with blonde-haired, blue-eyed children that get to their place of completeness by the end of the story by overcoming the woes of single parenting and and bringing in a motherly female figure to look after the children because how could the man possibly do that he is simply a a cold old grump without a woman to to access his soft and tender side and and to unlock his inner nurturing father because only a woman knows how to nurture and nourish children right it it, it almost makes you vomit in 2023 Yet the antagonists in the film are literally Nazis, right? Which is the epitome of extremist tradition, the epitome of of conservatism, particularly in a Central European um, blonde blonde hair, blue eye situation. And, and this is this, this tension is so tight. It's these two ideas are so adjacent. When you look at what Mister von Trapp wants and what his family stands for. Um, like if you take the the, the song Edelweiss, uh, which is a is a musical tribute to Austria as his homeland, um, it, it does evoke a very authentic nationalistic Austrian. Fo- it's a it's a it's a it's a folk ballad from Austria. It, it evokes a very whatever you want to call authentic Austrian national identity. He's not singing, you know, the theme song to. Uh, um, you know, he's not singing like a Native American chant to, to you know, bring... He's singing a song about Austria that's typical. And by the way, what's really interesting is that I found out in researching this week that an Edelweiss is actually the national flower of Switzerland, which is actually where they go to escape, which is actually, I think, very poetic, uh, if you didn't know that already. But it also says this... That tension says something about German society, but also during that time, but also just society in general as well, where how how enemies really aren't that far away from each other, right? And, and historically speaking, we can we can talk about how bad the Nazis were, but even if you rejected the Nazis, the ch- chances are you'll prob- you probably agreed with like 99% of what they did. You, you, the 1% was just the stuff about the Holocaust and da 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 But for the most part, most people were the same, and for the most part, most people are the same. And I think you can, and, and as we've explored this week, I think you could take the, say the exact same thing about progressives and conservatives in 2023, which is that we most of us agree with 99% of things we just don't realize and we don't we don't ever we don't ever focus on we don't ever draw our minds to the fact or turn our minds to the fact of the things we agree on which is the bulk of most 
things, right? Uh, and and if you if you focus too much on difference, you, you can you can blow things out of proportion. So here we have another example of a tension between upholding and rejecting tradition. And this is a very tight tension because everybody in this film wants to uphold tradition, but they all want to do it in a slightly different way. And this leads to gunfire and chasing and 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 concentration camps by the end of the you know by the end of this period. So how do we solve this problem? And also speaking of how do you solve this problem? Um, on that personal level, the song How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria, where they sort of sing about all the good things about her and all the bad things about her, and I wish she could be like this. This concept of duality is actually lifted up from the very beginning of this film in that song. And if you go back and watch the film, think about the lyrics and, and, and tied in with what we've talked about today because it is, it's very apt. Um, but... This film is very compelling. It's very addictive. You know, Hugh Grant recently said it's his favourite film and he puts it on every, like, Sunday afternoon in order to, to feel better. What is it specifically about this film that, that allows us to transcend parts or past all the Nazism and, and the, the awkwardness and the and the fact that it's probably a bit dated, but it kind of isn't? All right, well, let's, let's bring everything together, shall we? All right, so at the start of, the, of this, week, this week's episode, we, we talked about how there's clearly a tension on the individual level specifically, on the personal level, between wanting to uphold and re- reject tradition. Sometimes rege- tradition is something that holds us back. It, it, it dehumanizes us. It can be something that, that, that feels oppressive uh, and suffocating. But at the same time, we, we do have a love for certain traditions. And you can see that in any given culture, by the way. you can see If you take anyone from any culture, there's something that they love about their grandparents and the food they make and the clothes they wear. But there's also something they hate about their grandparents and their old-fashioned views. And they don't know that. You can take about any culture in the world you can say that about. And you can say that about your own culture. And then when we talked about Princess Mononoke, we talked about how it is this, it's an inescapable tension. We see it on the personal level, as we just explained, we see it on the political level, you know, you've got environment versus industry, both those things are important. You also see it on the abstract level. Well, we do have this intuitive love of letting things go with the flow, letting things be spontaneous and, and making up our minds as the world sees fit. But on another level, we do have a great deal of, we, we we literally use traditional stories to tell that very to tell that very story in and of itself. You know, saying that um, one should leave things up to the intuitive, the organic, the natural is almost an archetypal idea that is traditional, that is conservative, that is archetypal, that comes from a rich history of storytelling and, and lesson learning. And then when we talk about sound music, we say that we can, all those strata, we see, you know, seeing all that on all these different strata, we see that in the real world as well, right? So in The Sound of Music, how do they break free of this tension? Well, I guess on a very basic level, what you could say is it's through reaching this shared sense of joy, a rejection of bitterness and coldness and fear, which is what we see in Mr. Von Trapp's character at the start of the film, uh, and, and, and an embrace of love, family, and, and harmony, literally, you know, through song. And we talked about this briefly when we talked about, I think it was Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, where uh, song and music can be used in films as, as a very apt metaphor for harmony and, and compassion. But this sort of makes us think about how some human values are so important, they're so no- noble that they actually transcend these basic political binaries of conservatism, of progressivism. Um, and this is similar to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we did that episode on lifting off, how the value of love ought to be this mutual goal of both technological innovation and resistance to technology. It, it's so sacred and important that, it, that it's above everything else. 
And if we go back to Princess Mononoke, we're seeing the same thing, but but almost in a, in a, in a reciprocated or an inverse way, where, where burning the forest or not burning the forest, it doesn't really matter insofar as what you do can't come from a place of hate. And to wind things all the way back to the blue caftan, right, to finish off today, the question of whether to uphold or reject tradition, this dilemma that Helene has, it's really a question of whether to, con- which is really a question of whether to conserve or to progress away from to tradition. Really, this question ultimately turns on, on, on a broader, greater, more important question of which option better expresses love. That's it for Sacred Cinema this week. I've been your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, here on 2XX98.3 FM. Did I say Ginny or Jimmy? It's Jimmy <laughs> here on 2XX98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. I ain't no sister of Ron Weasley, uh, and you've been a very patient and loyal listener. So please consider jumping onto the state on the website, consider subscribing or sponsoring the show, and we'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.